It's Tuesday, November 3rd, Election Day. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, the campaign for president comes to a close today, and it might take some time for us to know the results. We turn to Pen America's own Nora Benavides, who walks us through what to expect in the hours ahead, how we might all stay hopeful, and how voting is the ultimate act of free expression. Then, a We Will Emerge essay from poet and writer Natalie Diaz. And finally, a non-election conversation with novelist Alice Randall about her latest Black Bottom Saints. I'm Stephen Fee, all that coming up on The Pen Pod. For the past few weeks, we at PEN America have doubled down on our fight against disinformation this election season with our What to Expect When You're Electing initiative. The brains behind the operation is our own Nora Benavides. She's director of U.S. Free Expression Programs here at PEN America, and she joins me now. Hey, Nora. Hey, Stephen. Okay, so let's get into it. It's election day. Um, What should we expect today, tonight, and into the next few days? And how can we be on alert for disinformation and other free expression threats? Well, thanks so much, Stephen. First, I think we need to be prepared for this election cycle feeling, looking so different from any other. And I think that begins with knowing that we're going to have and we'll be seeing delays in the way results get reported. So I don't know about you. I, you know, I sit around on election night and I'm, I'm waiting to see as results trickle in. That's not going to happen this year in the same way that it has in the past. And so we really need to be prepared You know, amid a pandemic, for example, we have so many more mail-in ballots, and a lot of states can't even begin counting those mail-in ballots until after polls have closed tonight. So we're going to be waiting for those mail-in ballots to be processed. It can be days. Frankly, some experts even think it can be weeks for our presidential election results to be known. So I think we have to be patient. We also have to be sensitive to the misinformation. And I know you mentioned that already. You know, we have to know that even our favorite influencers, our friends, our family, who knows what people might be sharing. And so what I'm telling people is fact check everything you see. Take a beat, take a pause, take a sip of water. Think about what you're sharing, what your friends are sharing, because it might be the stuff that isn't actually helpful It can be maybe a headline that's super incendiary and gets your heart racing, or it could be completely false. And then frankly, I think one more thing is really just we have to be prepared for whatever the unexpected is. You know, I didn't anticipate COVID. I don't know if you did. Um, I, I just think we have to kind of be nimble. And when we think about what might happen, if people are mobilizing in the street, we need to think about what our role is. You know, how can we support peaceful protest? If we're seeing weird headlines or images and videos on our social feeds, to be cautious. And whatever those things are that come out and play out over the next few weeks, we just need to be prepared for whatever may come our way. Yeah, I like the staying calm guidance because I think that's the hardest thing to do sometimes, but is the best advice. Um, So tell me, I mean, you've said to me before that voting is an act of free expression. What does that mean exactly? Well, I'm not going to give you a history lesson because that's no one has time for that today. Um, But I do think that it's important to remember, you know, how our voices matter in a democracy and the idea that we can vote for the things we believe in or the things that are the closest to what we believe in mean that 
we have the opportunity to weigh in as a starting point on what our democracy looks like. You know, a lot of people are saying that this election season isn't perfect. And I think that's fine to talk about. But in a democracy, when we think about our free expression rights, it's so crucial to know what role we have. And nothing is more central to how we can express ourselves in a democracy than who we vote for and that we're voting in the first place. Uh, You know, from a First Amendment perspective, I will die on the hill that always reminds people our voice is our vote. And we have to remember that. We can't feel somehow like this election season, our voice doesn't matter, that it might not be counted. That's frankly disinformation working if it makes you feel somehow like our institutions don't serve us. And so voting is essential to all the ways that we express ourselves and the way we frankly imagine what our future looks like together. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about staying calm in the context of disinformation. But, you know, I mean, you've you've been on the front lines of civil rights fights as part of your career. You know, how do we manage all of the things that we are feeling right now? Um, Like, what do you turn to to cope? Well, I wish I had a perfect answer. You know, I wish I had the answer that's like tied up in a bow because I think we all are feeling anxious. I don't know about you. I'm exhausted. I think we're all just in kind of Zoom fatigue, social media fatigue. I think it's important to know that we can't do things alone and know when our limits are kind of at their breaking point. So if you're feeling anxious or frankly, depressed about the state of things, that's okay. Um, And it's really important to take a beat to kind of have that centering moment. But there's also really powerful value in knowing your network and using your network and talking with your friends and your allies. In all of the work we do, I think as an organization at PEN America, with our allies that are civil rights and voting rights organizations, we are so much stronger when we do work together. And so it's important to know that in those moments when we're exhausted, that's okay, but let's turn to the people that we're closest with. Let's turn to the voices that we know that might be able to kind of pick up where we aren't able to and vice versa. Well, that's good advice for everybody, I think, right now. Nor Benavides is Director of U.S. Free Expression Programs here at PEN America. Thanks, as always, Nora. Thanks, Stephen. Now another in our series of essays about what the future might hold. In this We Will Emerge essay, poet Natalie Diaz explores togetherness, voting, and basketball. I am Natalie Diaz, and I'm reading A Practice of Momentum. Why arrive to a conversation about voting bearing a story about basketball? Most of what I know about living through America, I learned on a busted-up concrete ball court beside a condemned school the city boarded up, then reopened for bad kids. The school and its court were the last thing between Race Street, our last Res Street, and the rest of town, an end or beginning, depending on which direction I was headed. That court became a land my country could not consume. That court and soon any court were iterations of the way I would relate to land and place forever. A basketball court 
like the Mojave word for garden, is not so much a location as it is what is done there, more importantly, how it is done. I was taught anything worth doing is worth doing intentionally, worth making a practice of, and a practice is attending of the self in relation to everything that surrounds you. A place is a practice, and that court was my place. I played on it almost every day and night, learning by doing a tradition of energy and momentum, a way to live a life. Once I made it over the top spikes of the high chain-link fence, the sun and my shadow were my only opponents. Against them, I played myself to the edge of my own possibility. I ran out of moves, out of drills to memorize, ran out of trash to talk to nobody and everybody, ran out of what I knew could be done with a body like mine who had come from and loved bodies like the bodies I loved. There began the foundational imaginings of my blood and muscle body and its desires, unhindered yet by knowledge and language. There began I. Up and down that court, shot after shot, I was a question throbbing between my res and a town, my people and a country. I was an interrogation, between and yet touching all sides. What does it mean to be native? What does it mean to be not? What I searched for on that court was unknown to me. I wanted only what I needed and was still learning how to articulate what it meant to not have either. What I found there has come to represent the differences I recognize between possibility and impossibility. What I found was desire and the realization that it is my people's natural condition. We were made in desire of the earth and water come together in the desire of our Creator's hands and abundance of our desert. Why interrupt a conversation about basketball and voting with a story about desire? I arrive everywhere, mid-sentence in the middle of this conversation. Basketball is one origin of my sensual body and its desires, and the dangerous relationship of those desires to America. I learned the importance of impossibility through the momentum of the game, a pathway to endure my country and its occupation with me, of me, and against me. Basketball is one of my imaginations of what might happen three moves ahead or beyond, if what could happen does happen, if what could happen does not. If I can shake my shadow left, go between my legs right, spin back, and reverse flick the ball into the bucket before the sun has time to slap its shadow on the metal backboard, then what is the world? What is a country? What is a self? I learned some of the answers to these questions on the first trips I took off the reservation, at basketball tournaments. Many of my first battles with the kids from town were on a basketball court. And I bring desire here now since the origins of the word vote are rooted in it, to vow to a god, to pray, a person who sacrifices, a wish, a longing for something. If I should cast a vote, shouldn't I first ask myself what it is I desire of my country? Desire is nothing, if not the momentum I must carry into every American morning I dare to exist in, an abiding, a tension I reside in, I hate losing more than I love winning. I'm sure I have said this in some iteration. Every athlete does, though I doubt I've ever meant it. In some ways, they are the same, victory and defeat. 
I move in this country the way I moved on the court, sensual to momentum, cultivating a patience that is not passive, laboring to hold, to seed until I might bloom. My existence requires a dislocation from traditional markers of time and score, a clock, the year 1492, the year of my birth, a scab and its scar, any election year. Before the beginning and always becoming, I say, to remind myself I am capacious, of origin, of rising at any moment and from any descent, including the descent of a country. As a native in America, I must disallow being counted down on a nation clock of beginnings. American time zones are designed to begin after my people. Natives were the last Americans to receive the right to vote, because we weren't American. The Supreme Court in 1884 made sure the 14th Amendment didn't apply to us. Still, natives have largely volunteered to serve in America's military for 200 years. As of November 2019, natives made up 1.4% of the U.S. population and served in the U.S. military at 1.7% of its population, the highest per capita of any population. Even today, natives aren't always American enough to vote, to be charged the responsibility of our own desires, to cast our wish for how we might live in a country. But natives are ever American enough to fight and win this country's wars, to kill and die in them. I don't wager to win America. It is lost and arrived to my people as such. I don't desire its success. My country is in fulfillment. It has come to fruition. It is the self it dreamed of becoming. Sometimes the only way I know if I have won a day is to arrive at its evening exhausted or to slide my foot across the bottom of my bed at three in the morning and graze the sole of my lover's foot. Moments that add up to a life, a life's momentum. Is it possible for me to win the outcome of any election in this country? Is it possible to reorganize the energy of a vote in America away from what so many terrible American votes have enacted? Genocide, theft, enslavement, lynching, a bomb, a bomb, a corridor of desert where people are marched among scorpions to shallow graves, 545 migrant children with missing parents, a new prison, a new execution, a new wall, an old trick. All this and also a vote that is mine. All this and also a country that is mine, as so many terrible things are. A vote is an extension of my American hand. I, too, hold the hammer America holds, whether or not I mark and sign the ballot. Two, this vote is an extension of what I am imagining far beyond what it is capable of. My vote is my return to that fissured and weeded concrete court, three steps ahead as a practice, no shot clock, on the way to what hasn't been imagined, intentionally impossible. My vote will not stop or remedy the nation acts that have shaped and continue to shape what is hardest in me, that have made me a gardener of my beloved's wounds and thorns. There are more impactful things I might do, but that I have not arrived at yet. With that in mind, I was dreamed to arrive at the edge of a piece of paper. As I often am at a poem, here I am at a ballot. I do not come to it as a choice. 
I do not choose the life this country has imagined for me, for my beloveds, for any stranger or living being. I arrive to this vote as an action, a constellated energy of resistance and complicity. It will start something. It is another origin that must occur in order to arrive at what might occur next, one momentum toward the possibility my country is asking of me, and the impossibility I will answer it with. It is arising in me, an unknown action I cannot be solved for. I don't know that my ancestors labored and suffered, loved and joyed for this vote. They did plenty of each. I do believe that I am the momentum of my ancestors having arrived, arrived and still in motion, still toward. I also believe that where you and I ever meet is in the space of what might happen next, not a location, but what we do there, and how we do it, a practice of our relations, and we must relate better. My ancestors will be there too, they always are not in the past, but in what lies ahead, and not just for me, but for all of us. They will receive us in whispers, or winds, a crown of light they set upon our heads, a coyote stopping in the road to look you in the eyes, the owl or the snake, a humming, a stone, a poem. If I might make a gift of words in this moment, it is to remind myself that I will not be alone on the other side of this vote. We will be together in that place, us and them, we and they, I and all who make up the I who I will be. We won't agree, not about the way anything has happened, not about how deep anyone's wounds were. Yet, together and with, knowing or remembering a time when there were nations, when we were nations that were not this nation, I understand if you decide not to vote, and I am also counting on your desires, your wishes for who we might become, yet is the momentum where I wish to find us next. We are the ancestors of what is yet impossible of America. That was poet Natalie Diaz with A Practice of Momentum, part of our We Will Emerge project. This piece was supported by the Pop Culture Collaborative's Becoming America Fund. You can read Natalie's essay and others on our website, pen.org. A native of Detroit, novelist Alice Randall's latest Black Bottom Saints is a send-up of one of the city's most famous neighborhoods. The book follows gossip columnist Ziggy from the Depression through the post-war years. It's a tale that draws on a vibrant community of Black artists and luminaries. Alice Randall, the author, joins me now. Thanks so much for being here. Wonderful to be with you. So, Alice, what is or what was Black Bottom? Well, first of all, Black Bottom is a place. It was a place in Black Detroit, but it's also an attitude. And I think that's really important to start with. Black Bottom is a chin-up, defiant spirit that takes as its slogan, we shall rise from the ashes. Uh, but it was also a neighborhood in Detroit. And the center of that neighborhood was a place called the Gotham Hotel that Langston Hughes called the most important Negro hotel in the world. Uh, Ziggy, the his hero of my novel, lives 
In the Gotham Hotel is a real place where I was as a child. And in the Gotham, there was black art on the walls, black paintings and photographs and black music and amazing food from lobster to collard greens. But more importantly, there were people, everyday, ordinary Black people coming on a spree and school children, but Thurgood Marshall when he's in his early civil rights days and Martin Luther King, all of these people will come through the lobby of the Gotham Hotel. And nobody more important than the everyday breadwinners, the Black auto workers and their families, men and women who worked in Detroit. They come through the Gotham. But the Gotham got knocked down in 63. And, but the legacy is the, of the Gotham is that individuals and communities can rise from extreme losses. One of the things that excites me about the book is that the Gotham Hotel Black Bottom rise from these pages and they insist that crimes perpetrated on you don't get to define you, you define you. That's Black Bottom, when you know you define you. Yeah, a way of thinking and a place. And and who are the saints of the book? Well, there are 61 of them. Some of them are hidden. Um, there, there were supposed to be 52, but you could not uh, you could not boil it down to 52. Ziggy Johnson, the hero of Black Bottom Saints, lived in Detroit. He was an MC of two famous clubs, the Flame Show Bar and the 20 Grand. He also wrote a gossip columnist and he had an inner city dancing school. Every one of the saints does three things. They know a lot about moving from trauma to transcendence. They walk through the lobby of the Gotham Hotel, quite literally, and they appeared in one or more, sometimes many, of Ziggy's columns. And so that's how you came to be a saint. But more importantly, that first part, they knew a lot about moving from trauma to transcendence, and they can help people do that now. And they come from every walk of life. Some of them are sports figures, such as Ted Rhodes, the golfer, and Night Train Lane. Many come from the show world, Nat King Cole, Sammy Davis, but you're going to see them like you never knew them before. They're Black lawyers and doctors and everyday people, artists, ministers. But there's even Scatterbrain Stevens, a heroin dealer, who was a model for Superfly, who we will discover in his chapter wanted to really have a barbecue sauce business and is one of the few people who observed that when the Pope first drove out of the Vatican into Italy when the Vatican was its own country. He was driving a car built by black men in Detroit that he was driving black excellence. So scatterbrain was more than his worst day. Yeah, I mean, that idea of trauma to transcendence, you know, it it's hard, of course, to read this book now and not be both nostalgic and also think about loss, about what Detroit was, what what Black America looked like in that in that sort of run up to the Second World War period, the 20th century. I mean, you know, do you do you think of it as a story of loss? Do you think of it as a story of, you know, Detroit and the auto industry, obviously, which has been decimated and an industry in that region being decimated? Or do you look at it differently? I look at it very differently. I center the story on the Black experience. And Black people weren't about the car industry. So to me, I center it on the, yes, it is lost. This is a Camelot. It's a Pompeii. But as I say, it also rises in a Black's to me, it's not a story about loss. It's a story about rising from the ashes. It speaks very much into this 
present moment. One yeah. of the most important saints in the book is Tanya Blanding. She's a four-year-old black girl who was shot down in her own home in the summer of 1967 by Michigan State Patrolmen. Black Detroit rises in the spirit right now of say her name. Mm. In this moment now, we need to, I have, I knew, I, I played on the same street where Tanya Blanding was killed. I remember clearly the day she was killed when I was about three or four years older than she was. We played on that same street. It is taken to now the defiance and self-definition that we find in this moment has some roots to Detroit City. And it rises in this moment. Yeah. Why did you decide to, you know, uh, focus on Ziggy, a, a gossip columnist and, and many other things as a, as a lens? How did that, how does that function in this text? Well, one of the things I'm interested in untold stories and I love the rest of the story and the underprivileged story that so much of what we lose when we insist on looking at, for example, government documents only is the reality. You know, we know the phrase government name, the name that is on your birth certificate or the name that's on your social security card may not be a name anyone in this world calls you. In Ziggy's entertainment and gossip columns, we get a lot of the untold history. And I was inspired. My father did not read to me from children's books when I was a little girl. He read to me from three newspapers a day. And one of the newspapers he read to me from was the Michigan Chronicle, a black newspaper that mm -hmm. rivaled the Chicago Defender and the Pittsburgh Courier. I fell in love with Ziggy's language then. And I also fell in love with hearing the untold story, why Tallulah Bankhead was important as a white ally to black people in the 50s and 60s. What could be learned about the rest of Ethel Waters' life that she wrote two autobiographies for herself. She wasn't just an actress and a singer, that there was more to the story. And Ziggy put a lot of that more in his column. I like shining a light on sources that have been overlooked and ignored. I think we should be plumbing a lot more of our black gossip columns and entertainment columns for the rest of the black American experience and the American experience. And specifically, you know, coming, I knew that I had an experience of being an abused child. And I knew that part of the way I got to hard one happy was that I had spent time in Ziggy's, the real Ziggy's dancing school, where he had told me the stories of the hundreds of lives of people, of black people largely, who moved from trauma to transcendence. And I know how Ziggy's stories had inspired me and I wanted to share them with the larger world, um, particularly in the aftermath of, in the Me Too moment when I thought there was so much pain and so little light being shown on how you don't let someone else's worst moment define your best moment. Without minimizing any of the harm done, I want to maximize the possibilities that more people who have hard experience get to move from trauma to transcendence.
Absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is so interesting in this book, it, there's, it, you're interspersing the text with some cocktail recipes. And I wonder, what, is, what does that do for us? Well, one, aesthetically, Ziggy and Black Detroit privilege addressed to all the senses. And what a cocktail gives you is taste, sound, touch, smell, sight. Now, how does it give you sound that shaking or stirring? Some cocktails actually have sound. But that's one of the things I love about this are this address to all five senses that many people experience in church services. Uh, but Ziggy moved that into the secular world that you definitely experience in a show bar. But you can put it in one little cocktail. You can get all five. And these cocktails also function as taste metaphors. Mm. Um, and they're visual metaphors. Two of my favorites are the 66 Rue Pagal, which celebrates brick top. It's literally red with strawberries that celebrates her red hair and freckles. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have the last lick, which is Della Reese's libation. And it honors the reality that Della Reese fought to end her victimization as a person who was victimized by domestic violence. She had a first husband that beat her that she left. And it looks like a bruise on black skin. It has a wine wash at the top. But both of these are based on historic cocktails that are uh, were created by one of the saints of the book, Thomas Bullock, who creates in 1917 is going to publish a book called The Ideal Bartender. Mm -hmm. These are variations on Bullock's drinks that speak to the fact that Black bartenders were creating narrative. When you see that wash, that red wash on the brown liquor, Bullock created that. And Bullock, working in Joe Lewis's world and the fight world, he may have been more speaking to the boxing game when he created it. And I have remixed it into a, a statement about transcendence from domestic violence into personal safety. But the metaphor, the power of the red wash of the bruise on black skin, that belongs to Bullock. So this book celebrates all the black people, including Bricktop, who owned a bar in Paris and in um, Rome and in Mexico City, and Bullock, who worked in country clubs and in his own places and in black places. It celebrates black people who were creating in these, in blind pigs and in taverns in country clubs and cocktail bars. They were creating expressive art that was never recognized as that. That we want to celebrate these new cocktail makers today as if they are the first ones. Bullock was doing that in 1917, but we weren't acknowledging it. So the cocktails mean a lot to me. Some of them don't have liquor in them. After we get mm -hmm. Tanya Blanding's story, you get something that is very sharp lemon. It is a lemonade. It is complete sobriety. It is something that confronts us that there is no escape from that moment because the saints of fall in my book are the saints that show that you can have a genius of resilience, but if the deck is too stacked against you, you will simply die before you get a chance to transcend the trauma. Hmm. Well, let me just ask you finally, I mean, you mentioned obviously the story of, of Tanya Blanding and I, you know, it just, the, 
in my mouth. I just uh, Sandra Bland, right? Like the, the words start getting mixed up in my mouth a little bit, even because, you know, the connections to what we're experiencing now with anti-black violence in particular and all the names that we, we need to say over and over again. You know, you mentioned a bit, but I wonder a bit more about how you think readers might interpret this book right now. I think right now that I think readers are going to see it as a work that helps them experience and argue that every black life matters, not just the bourgeois respectable black lives, that scatterbrain Stevens matters, that uh, say that the kids, the young people who are leading the Black Lives Matter movement, leading the Say Her Name movement, are not speaking just to this moment. They are speaking to hundreds of years of crime that went unwitnessed. And they have done this extraordinary thing. I think that when we read the book now, we recognize the absolutely extraordinary triumph of this moment, that they have finally gotten an entire nation to pay attention to crimes that have been going on for so long. And I applaud these young people. And I offer them these people who are working those same vineyards before them, and that can help sustain them and revive them. Because one of the things about this book right now is it argues that joy is radical. And Black joy is particularly radical. And it helps you achieve some black joy right now. It helps all people achieve some honorable, honest joy. Absolutely. Uh, finally, Alice Randall, what are you reading right now? You know what I'm reading what's bringing me joy is Randall Keenan, If I Had Two Wings. And the story in there that I love is the eternal glory that is Ham Hocks, uh, in which he, <laughs> may, he manages to put Howard Hughes way off to the side. This is like his equivalent of my Ethel Waters chapter. Then he does things I can't do at all with corn and mothers and violence and blueberries and bagels and chicken livers in this delicious chat, uh, story that has food at his center, but has identity, violence, trauma, and transcendence in his own way. Randall Keenan Jess turns on every light in the house. Mm -hmm. Sometimes my saints burn the house down. Randall Keenan turns on every light in the house, adds some candles, brings some starlight, <laughs> and gets it all sizzling. And I just love it. I So if I had two wings, Randall Keenan. So Alice Randall to Randall Keenan, I love that we are, are sort of like little name cousins, totally unrelated, mm -hmm. but I adore that book. I will be assigning it in Soul Food when I teach that this fall. I like that. I like that. Turning on all the lights. Well, award-winning author Alice Randall, her latest Black Bottom Saints is available now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's thrilled to be with Pitt. I love the work you have historically done and do now. So thank you. And that's our episode for this election day. Join us Friday for the Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. Don't forget to vote. See you soon.